0: Love, talk radio I don't mind if you got something to life to say about me I'm going acco like the rest and you could take my picture and hang it in Good
1: morning and welcome to Solutions Live business Edition I'm your host Chickie Fitzgerald coming to you from Tampa Florida Solutions live provides practical advice from authors and experts on a wide range of topics for professionals to help you. Good morning, and sorry for the abrupt cutoff, but we are going to have an abbreviated show today. And it is Tuesday, the 21st of April, and uh, I am in Tampa, and I've got my host, Chris Bradshaw, in Dallas, Texas. Good morning, Chris.
0: Good morning, Chickie. We have beautiful weather here in Dallas. Well, you always have beautiful weather.
1: (laughs) Well, we do, actually. It's a gorgeous day. We've got uh, puffy clouds that uh, have a little hint of moisture in them, but uh, I think we're going to have another gorgeous day here. Well, we have got a great show today, albeit a little bit shorter than usual, Uh, but we have got a terrific guest, and let me just go ahead and get her on the air. Uh, Hang on one second. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Welcome, and where are you calling in from this morning?
2: I am in sunny San Diego this morning. Oh wow! So it's early. <laughs> it is early here, but it's still <laughs> already a gorgeous day.
1: Is the sun up yet? Oh yes. Yeah, I noticed this morning. I uh, my my kids leave for school uh, just a little bit after seven, and my husband let me sleep in this morning, which I uh, truly appreciate. <laughs> and uh, But I noticed how light it was uh, at just a few minutes after 7, so uh, I, I love this time of the year, and uh, it's actually quite cool here in Florida uh, based on what it's going to be later in the year. So we are having San Diego weather today. There you go. Well, Holly, I would like to just uh, give our guests a little background on you, and uh, as we know, you were an author of the book more more than a minute, but i 'd really like to know kind of what led up to all of that and I know uh you did end up working with
2: uh the Blanchard companies. but what did you do before that? Oh my goodness! I did so many things. I think my poor parents just thought i couldn 't keep a job uh,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> i I started out my career in finance actually and shifted over eventually into human resources and then got involved. In strategic planning, went back to graduate school and got a, a graduate degree in organization development. So just put a lot of pieces and parts together. Um, I worked for the Coca-Cola companies based in Atlanta, and uh, did some strategic planning work with Coca-Cola and a lot of internal consulting to the top 300 executives there. And so that sort of started the uh, really the beginnings of a lot of the work that I do today in uh, in my consulting practice and, 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 then, and
1: did you know all along that you were an entrepreneur or, or did you really feel that you fit well in, in the corporate environment I really thought I
2: was not an entrepreneur uh, for years and years I resisted wow. um,
0: yeah.
2: um, primarily I think it was sort of financial risk adversity um, I was concerned about that I've been the breadwinner in my family pretty much from the beginning and um, I was very this is a familiar concerned. story Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, there was stability in corporate America. I also love to work on a team and with a team. And so, you know, I thought that corporate, the corporate world offered a little more of that. Come to find out that really wasn't true at all. But it took me a lot of years, 20 years before I finally dove in headfirst and and stayed 110% committed to really building my own firm.
1: And so how did you meet Ken, or how did you end up at the Ken Blanchard company?
2: Well, they recruited me. Um, I had been a client of the firm, and I also went to graduate school with the daughter of Ken and Margie Blanchard. Um, so knew them a little bit uh, from a personal perspective, but primarily I had been a, uh, a client. And they recruited me. I came out interviewed with the, with the whole family and then the board of directors for the company. And became the president of that organization in very early, really very late 2000. Got it, got it. Tell us a little bit about what you learned there
1: versus corporate life.
2: Well, um, you know, that was sort of a blend because it's a family-owned business exclusively. And, uh, you know, the huge difference in being in a family-owned business and being in a, in a more typical corporate structure, uh, competency and results are not, typically the highest valued element, it's family is. And so that makes for a very different dynamic, different performance sort of criteria, uh, a different system of accountability. Um, so it was a really good learning. It's it's fairly painful for any of those uh, listeners out there who've worked in a family business that was not their family. <laughs> <laughs> they can probably appreciate some of what I'm uh, talking about here. It can be pretty painful. Um, and so it, But it was great learning for me. Certainly enjoyed my time there and definitely learned a lot.
1: Very interesting. I, I see a lot of parallels. I mean, in my life, I mean, you you talk about uh, you know being the breadwinner in the family, uh, and actually on the family-owned companies, uh, my husband works with me. So everybody who's ever worked for me can probably sympathize with one <laughs> the other uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because it, it is tough. Because you know the the priorities um, you know do do have to shift uh, based on that.
0: But it's well, tough, but wonderful, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's tough but wonderful. I know I know a, a number of people who work in family owned businesses, and probably um, they're like, well, I'll never go back to corporate America, in the sense of the big, large, publicly traded, you know, businesses that have such a short term thinking. Whereas strategically, I, I you know, a, a private business, not just family run, but um, you know, a good private business can do so many more things.
2: I think that's a great point. I think you're right. It's timeframes uh, tend to be a little different. Um, what's rewarded tends to be a little different, how decisions get made. And I think it's, it's like anything. There are advantages and there are disadvantages. Same thing with being an entrepreneur. You know, there are real advantages to having my own firm and, and doing what I'm truly passionate about and what I absolutely love doing. And there are a few disadvantages as well. <laughs> so, you know, you just have to say, what trade offs am I willing to make and what's most important to me?
0: Well, you hit on Chickie's favorite topic, which is <laughs> the, the, the difference between the two and, and really what suits you and what, you know, what's your personality and what do you like. And I think it's really interesting how um, some of us have to get pushed off that perch of what we think makes us comfortable, right?
2: Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, I was encouraged for years and years and years to build my own company and it really it took two sort of uh professionally tragic things to happen uh, before I finally said this is crazy. This is what I need to be doing. And it, and it took, you know, a good probably 5 years longer than it should have. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, you, you have now really piqued our curiosity because that's the first time I've heard the word professionally tragic <laughs> or, or, or the term. So so can you give us some insights of, of what that catalyst
2: was? Sure, sure. I was laid off from the Blanchard companies, and so um, that was following 9-11, and, and the business dropped off uh, enormously. We lost about 50% of the business in two weeks following 9-11, and I left the company in the following February. Well, it was really tough times. You know, everyone has a hard time remembering back that far, but it was, a, it was a tough time in our country, not only economically, but emotionally as well. And I went to the Blanchard organization believing that I would probably retire there. And so after a short period of time, to, to be leaving was, was pretty tragic um, from a professional perspective. And the family went back to running the business um, exclusively by the family and still do that to this day. Uh, and, and, you know, we parted on good terms, so it wasn't really uh, about that, but it was still a huge shift from what I had set my head around, and I moved my entire family across the country, of course, to do this. Um, and following that, I did a biotech startup oh in, uh, in the year 2002, I guess. Wow. Um, 2000 and Yeah, 2002. And talk about a terrible year to try and raise money, but we did raise some venture capital funding. And we were negotiating the final, we were actually at the attorney's office negotiating all of the final contracts to sign over the intellectual property from the chief scientific officer of the company who who had done those patents himself to license all of that to the company. And he had a complete physical and mental breakdown.
0: Oh, no. And so
2: Again, not something you would ever guess, not something you would put in an envelope, not something you could plan for in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And so, of course, we had no access to the intellectual property, and three months later we had to shutter the company. His family oh. decided not to release it, you know, with him sick, right. and oh, uh, unfortunately no. he stayed sick for a very, very long time. Oh, so those were my professionally tragic events, you know, uh, really difficult and tough. And so much of our persona is wrapped up in what we do and how we do it. And uh, to have those two things happen in the course of really a couple years uh, makes you wonder. <laughs> wow. Now
1: I know that that Ken wrote uh, the One Minute Manager back back in the 80s, and and. You ended up writing your book, which was called More Than a Minute, which uh, you know I, I suspect there's no accident in, in uh, your choice of title. But did you always have a book in you? Did you, did you know you wanted to become an author and, and that you wanted to
2: write? Or how did that come about? Those are great questions, and I'd say no. I don't think I knew. Um, I was really sort of nagged, pushed, and prodded into writing the book from clients and colleagues and friends. Um, it's not something I ever dreamed I'd do. Um, I'm really great. I love being behind the scenes and helping other people be successful. And so, you know, that was the perfect fit with the Blanchard organization because I was the person running everything behind the scenes. Ken is obviously was the front guy. Um, and so I, I really did never believed I had it in me, and yet I found it incredibly easy to write because it's, it's what I do in my practice, uh, the book starts with strategic planning and moves through you know communications internally, informing, engaging, and inspiring people, um, giving feedback appropriately, and then learning and unlearning, which I think is going to be probably one of the greatest challenges for leaders in the upcoming mm-hmm. years is unlearning because of the pace that we we move at and the rate of change. Yeah. Um, but, no, I, I don't think I really believed I had it in me. I, I truly was pushed and prodded. Finally, one of my clients sat down and said, You have absolutely, positively got to do this. <laughs> and I spoke with a couple of agents, and I was very lucky. Because of my background and some of the credentials that I had, I was able to find an agent very quickly um, and progress uh, pretty rapidly. I didn't have a lot of the heartache that I see you know, so many authors have to go through. So I was very, very blessed in that regard.
0: So um, can you talk a little bit more about that book and what key elements of it um, and what came after that? Sure, sure. About The Human Factor, can you explain yep.
2: that? The Human Factor is my firm, and I've actually had that off and on for 15 years. You know, I would always use it as a as a backup in between jobs or uh, if a great gig came along, then, that's you know, a great that's a <laughs> well, you know, fifteen years ago I think because they had come out of finance and some other aspects of of a company and you know, it's kind of, it's the people stupid. Um, right. <laughs> you know, you can do a whole lot of other things but if you don't consider the people. Um, you know, and, and I kinda of grew up during the total quality management time frame, you know, where seventy eight percent of all those projects failed, uh, because they didn't consider the people. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, it was it was also mechanized. Um so that's where that came from, and, and, again, I've had that off and on for 15 years, and that's, that's my firm that I do all my work through. Um, and the book really starts with the process that I came up with and, and continues to get modified and, and evolve over the years around strategic planning and what are the core questions that you have to ask to get really clear on winning in a business. And this can be done at a team level, by the way, and even really most elements of it can be done at an individual level, and then certainly at a corporate level. So this is the actual work I do with multibillion-dollar clients globally on, uh, you know, why do we exist, how will we behave, what's our value to key stakeholders, where are we going, where are we today, where should we focus our energies, et cetera. Um, so the book is really up-to-date methods and practices, um, Includes reminders, checklists, frameworks, and I'm constantly reminding people in the book. There's no one right way. There's no one perfect way. I'm not a real big believer in best practices. I'm a big believer in winning practices. Um, but your system is set up to produce exactly what it produces today, and so you need to think about that. And what are you going to change in the system if you want to produce something differently?
0: So is that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say you're going into large corporations mostly and is it the case that over time they just get is it myopic or they forget why they're there or someone had a great idea that was tangential and then somehow that became the focus instead of the core? I mean, why do they have to be reminded and what why should they have to be brought back? Well, and
2: actually about half my work is in large companies and half is in uh, small startup to mid-sized businesses. So it's a wonderful diversity and variety. And it's really the same issues in almost any size company. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating. Us darn humans. Uh, (laughs) Right. You know, I I see a couple of things that that mostly get in the way today. Number one is the notion, the assumption that's pretty deep in most people's brains today that speed is more important than anything else. Uh-huh. Um, and so people are willing to do it over instead of take the time to do it right. Right. And we're, and this, so you couple that with the notion that we are so driven by the visual. Adult humans are incredibly visual creatures, um, mostly driven by what's in front of us all the time, and thus the, the uh, popularity of the PDA. And so people literally will spend time looking at their – their PDA or their cell phone doing their emails when, in fact, that's not the best use of their time. Right. You know, you really did not win the Nigerian lottery again this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and oh, yeah. I'm pretty
1: sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, you had a relative that died in the U.K. and left you a million pounds it's if you will just bad. give yes. me your bank account number, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but in my sessions oftentimes I'll have CEOs, I'll say, everyone take out your PDA and go ahead and pull up for me your top three strategies or your top three business objectives. And i got to tell you, almost no one can ever do it. Now think about that for just a minute, and yet you're staring at that darn device the majority of your day, and the most important things aren't on it. My job is to sort of be the nag, um, (laughs) the siren, the, the person that helps get the right things on your radar and keeps them there.
0: Gotcha.
1: Oh, I like that. I like that. So so uh some some little developer somewhere is now off developing a new iPhone app for uh for Holly's nagging.
2: <laughs> I love it. There you it. go, I can do all sorts of sounds in every day. <laughs>
1: Hey, I think we've got a new business there. I, You know, I'm I'm the idea-a-minute girl, so I think you, you and I go. would get along really, really well here, Holly. <laughs> you know, Holly, you said something a little bit earlier that really intrigued me, and that was the piece about, uh, you know, learning new management uh, strategies, but more importantly, unlearning. Can you mm, talk to yeah. us about that?
0: Please. Sure.
2: Sure. You know, the more successful we are, the more we're going to do the same things over and over. The more we work to prove ourselves right, and our brain is set up to rationalize away any contrasting data and to work really hard to prove ourselves right continuously. Yep. And I could talk a lot about the function of the brain, and the neurophysiology of it is, is fascinating, and that's where my postgrad work is and, and what I'm truly interested in, how and why we work the way we work at work. Um, but proving ourselves right is really important to us as successful adult humans. It's only when we fail that often we pause and say, gosh, what if I had done it differently, there was another approach, et cetera. And, again, the faster we go, the more we're doing this and the faster we're moving through that process in the brain to prove ourselves right and to not really think, to not pause and, and, and consider the data and the meaning and the assumptions and the beliefs that we're forming. And so we're constantly doing that. So it's very hard for us to unlearn. I mean, think about for just a minute. What business today is doing things exactly the same way as they were a year ago? Probably not very many. (laughs) And if they are, they probably won't be around much longer because everything changed. Everything changed. Customer expectations changed. Markets changed. Access to capital changed. Employee loyalty changed. I mean, we just went through a year of massive and significant change with all stakeholders. So if you can't unlearn the way you did it a year ago, five years ago, that always worked, and and factor in these changes and do something differently, you're going to be in trouble. And that's really what caused me to title the book more than a minute. I mean, The One Minute Manager was co-written by Spencer Johnson and Kim Blanchard more than 28 years ago. Right. Think about what's changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite frankly, in The One Minute Manager, it's all old white guys. There were no women. There were certainly no people of color. Um <laughs> You know, and it's fascinating. And there were no computers. The, well, the we three... were still
1: wearing those little suits with the little bow ties. Oh, do you remember yeah.
2: those? <laughs> the the man, woman suits. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you think about that, I mean, if you were still operating under those three secrets of the one-minute manager, and those secrets are one-minute goal setting, tell people what to do this week, one-minute reprimand, and one-minute praising and praising is probably the one that has withstood the test of time, really. If you're still doing those, you're in big trouble as a leader today. People are talking bad about you in the break room. <laughs> no kidding. You know, so, and those were revolutionary and sound principles at the time.
0: Right, but, it, and, well, that gets me to a question, which is, you know, with boomers, especially with the economy, the way it's changed now, um, a lot of us, I, I, have, I happen to be one, a lot of us are, now looking that we may have to stay in the workforce longer. We're not being pushed out of the way. Those are the habits that we have. We are always, the higher you are away from day to day, the more resistant you are to the change or the influx. (laughs) The cash cows, you know. Unless you're the one coming up with it, right? (laughs) Exactly, right? So, so, um, you know, things have changed, yes, but in a way, they've, they've They've
2: not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it fascinates me, all these articles I'm seeing about how terrible the millennials are, et cetera. And and if you go back, every single generation has said that about the next generation.
0: You know, as if, (laughs) as
2: parents, we had nothing to do with it, right? Right. Uh, (laughs) So it is a funny thing. You know, go back and look in the 50s, those dang hooligans, right? So there are advantages and disadvantages. This new generation comes with its own set of strengths and its own set of weaknesses as well. And and you're right, the baby boomers are at a place now in their careers where they've been successful. They've they've used and and, um, relied on some principles and operating practices that have served them well, many of them. Um, But guess what? Times change. Everything's changed. I mean, listen, two years ago, if, if I was talking to you about social media and the value of Twitter, you would have thought I had a medical condition. So, you know, everything changes. Uh, you know, just a year ago, secondlife.com was a pretty interesting place uh, with a lot of role playing and people in dragon costumes and all sorts of things. Today, more than half of its use is for business.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's been in a year. Yeah. So, you know, it is um it is fascinating and it is hard. There's no doubt or question about it. Uh, and this is a lot of the work I do is really teaching people how to think differently um and how to get focused on the right things, the most important things despite all the the sort of clutter and the chatter around us. Very
0: hmm.
2: cool. It is cool. It's a lot of fun helping <laughs> other people be successful is uh is just an amazing and then for me somewhat very selfish thing because I get great joy from doing it.
1: Well, we we are all kindred spirits then because that is <laughs> uh precisely what Chris and I love to do and you know and we've each done it in in different environments and yeah. you know I I asked you the question about whether you knew uh, that you were an entrepreneur inside. And I think it's very interesting, uh, you know, the, the answer that you gave, that you actually, you know, didn't have that sense. And when I was in corporate America, I just, you know, I kept trying to fit in. But, you know, it, it was interesting that people along the way kept seeing in me that entrepreneurial thing before I knew to put a name yeah. to it. And so I got all the special projects. And anything that had a blank sheet of paper that needed, you know, uh, an implementation plan, I was always the one doing it. So when it was time to go out on my own, and I, I didn't get laid off, but I elected to leave a company where I was the highest ranking woman in a global organization and still treated like an admin, and uh, so so much so that the CEO of a new division that I was uh, helping to form asked me if I knew of any powerful guys for the VP of marketing and he wanted someone oh. he wanted someone actually that looked a little bit like a football player now this guy to be fair was french and did not uh, and his office was in Atlanta Georgia so you would think he would understand that you actually can't say those words out loud <laughs> you know, and, and and not be subject to a lawsuit. But that was my impetus for leaving corporate life. And my mother had just had a stroke, so I went off uh, for a, a month or so to, to help get my dad oriented and, and getting the care situated for her. And, and then I went out on my own actually quite by accident at that juncture because I found some, you know, kind of like your story with, with the guy who, who broke down with the intellectual property, only mine was a group of guys – Who had lined up this uh, shell company, but they had they had some really good businesses to put in it. But it was a publicly traded entity, you know. So we would all get stock, and you know, I mean, the the great uh, white hope, I guess, for you know, uh, uh, kind of the opposite side of the Nigerian story, where you actually work for it. But you know, I had these great hopes, and here here I was, uh, I don't know, somewhere in my my early 40s, I guess, and and just thought okay I'm not going to have to work until I'm 70 you know this is going to give me that hope and uh you know like 90 days later there was no money left for payroll and and we did uh you know shut the company down but uh it, it's just so much fun to hear you talk about your experiences holly and and in in the last few minutes that that we have together i would just love to hear what 's next for you you know <laughs> is is the human factor going to take you for the, you know for the rest of your career and and do you want to spend the rest of your career doing this or is there
2: is there something else on your horizon that that is your dream? What a great question, and you know it 's funny because I tell you know I, I talk a lot about get clear on winning and, and it's i 'm at a place now where getting that clarity um, is more of a challenge, but I think what 's next, I think what I have finally come to is really building the human factor as more of a sustainable, larger organization um, with more products and offerings that we can provide across small, mid, and large-sized businesses so that it's not just me. You know, this is the dilemma in any professional services firm, right? Um, And so really thinking about that and beginning to focus more time and energy on doing that well. Um, And then I think the second thing that's, that's really on the horizon for me is getting involved in more of... I'm not even sure how to phrase it, so bear with me on the wording, but really supporting women and sharing and encouraging and motivating women leaders Mm -hmm. um, and getting a little more visible. I I do a lot of mentoring of female students at a local university, and I do a lot of that work sort of informally and here locally, um, but doing more of that on a larger scale, um, not because I think women are better than men, and quite frankly I don't buy into a lot of the the stuff around women are better leaders or managers, but I do think uh, we do lack a lot of the, the support structures and the natural abilities, um, not natural, but the, the taught abilities to support each other. You know, we're taught to compete. Right. And so um, I'm very interested in doing, I think, more in that arena, more speaking, etc. Well, I am glad to hear be now. Well,
1: I am really glad to hear about that because I know back in January you spoke to the Executive Girlfriends Group, and Chris and I are on the leadership team uh, of that organization. And since you spoke, that group has more than doubled, and we, we yeah. have actually created a community around it and are looking at expanding it beyond the travel industry, which is where Chris and I have, have our business roots. And so I would love to chat with you further uh, about about what we have done with that because I, I think it presents just an amazing opportunity to mix the the good things about technology and community but with the things that we all hold dear, which is the human factor, and that is relationship. <laughs> because yeah. that that's what we have believed from the very beginning. I mean, back in last summer when I called Chris and said, you know, you know, we really ought to find a way, you know, that we can all kind of debrief at the end of the week every week and, like, transform from being the business person back into being the wife and the friend and, and the mother and whatever other roles yeah. we hold, which is how the Executive Girlfriends Group got started.
0: Very well, the cool. Other, well, the other thing with the, with the Executive Girlfriends Group is that so often, and both of you have touched on this, we are the only women in the room at that level. So, we have no peers right. to talk to, especially if we're in smaller businesses, and yeah. no one to share those challenges with that are kind of sometimes unique to women. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: that is, uh, you know, I think that that is something that we can talk about in the future. Because, you know, Holly, I I went through the same thing that you were talking about uh, three years ago of looking at my business, which, you know, I've had my own consulting firm for 13 years. And I thought, you know, how am I ever going to retire? You know, because really the firm is me, even though I took great pains not to have the name be, you know, Chicken Uh Fitzgerald Enterprises. Um, You know, wanted to be able to create something lasting, create a legacy, create something that someone else can step into and not necessarily my children. Um, But, uh, you know, I would love to have some more dialogue with you, uh, you know, on another occasion perhaps on this show in talking about entrepreneurialism because I think you hit on some – really, really critical points. And even though you do uh, the bulk of your consulting with corporate clients, I think that there's a real need at our level of business owners uh, you know, who are trying to figure out what it is that they're going to want to do long term <laughs> and having that transition plan.
2: Well, the really cool thing is is most of what I do can be applied at any level. And yes. so that's the wonderful part of it and why I love it because it exposes me to the things of you know, every shape, size, and every industry and function, um, because really you can use the same approach, as I mentioned earlier, as an individual for a team or for a large, you know, multibillion-dollar
0: right. corporation.
2: And, and it's the same basic principles, and that's the beauty, I think, of getting it to the simple basics and really focusing on the basics, as they can be applied in so many ways. Well, that's terrific. Well, I, I will absolutely be calling
1: on you again. Uh we're gonna take a hiatus this summer of the regular uh radio show and do just some some special uh series. We're gonna do one on entrepreneurialism, we're gonna do one uh on job transition and being on sabbatical. Um and and so uh I
2: want I'm, one of those. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding.
1: Well, Chris and I interviewed a guy who had written a book called Escape One O One. Uh, about actually how to to plan uh, and engineer in a sabbatical into your life every year. Very uh,
2: smart, very smart.
1: Well, Holly, it's been great. Uh, You just have a wonderful day, and I am quite certain we will be back in touch with you.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you this morning, and, and don't hesitate to give me a holler at any time.
1: Okay, great. Well, you definitely will be hearing from me on the Executive Girlfriends Group front.
2: All right.
1: Take care. Okay. Take care. Well, Chris, we were so involved in our discussion with Holly, I forgot to uh, thank our sponsor for the day, which is the Guru Nation. The Guru Nation is the ultimate knowledge network for professionals who want to learn more, stand out and lead effectively. It's a professional community designed to ignite thinking, provide invaluable skill building and create access for hundreds of seasoned industry experts who will share their knowledge and open important doors. And they offer their content 24 by 7 plus the opportunity to talk live with over 20 industry leaders every month. And they also provide uh, a lot of professional development and leadership workshops, executive coaching and public presentation training. And uh, the best thing about it is that individual membership in the Guru Nation is free. And you can access their site at www.thegurunation.com. And, uh, Chris, I'm hoping to have uh, actually Amy Dorn uh, Copeland, uh, the co-creator of the Guru Nation, uh, on the show soon. So I'm really looking forward to that. But, you know, I thought what we would do just in, in the remaining half hour that we have is to talk a little bit uh, well, uh, you know, I'd like to reflect first of all on, on what Holly said this morning and really what we were talking about, the, this first slot of the show is always dedicated to innovation, but what we really talked about this morning was innovation and leadership and you and I have had a lot of dialogue about why that is needed.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I mean that's you know, it's funny when I was younger I used to look at um bosses and stuff, you know, when you're young. You 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 get some that you think are great, you get some that you think are horrible, and you sit there and you go, How did he get that job? How did she get that job? Why do they deserve that job? Right. And you know, that that's that's a continuous challenge. Now I understand how they got them and why maybe I don't know, the word deserve doesn't show up sometimes, but I at least understand it. And now I'm more compassionate, I think, too, about how organizations don't provide mentoring, they don't provide training, you know, how they either push you because that's the next step you're supposed to take and things like that. So I think leadership is always going to be a challenge.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, this week I'm, I'm spending a lot of time getting ready for uh, the women's retreat that I serve on uh, twice a year. And, you know, un- unlike most retreat organizations, this particular retreat is, is highly programmed. And, and we have about 36 women who come. And then we have a team of anywhere from 80 to 120 uh, on any given weekend that serves uh, those women right. and the the team is broken up into all the different functions and, and, and it's almost a little mini business, if you will I mean it, it, it only happens twice a year, so you, you can't actually make it into a profit making venture uh, in its current form uh, because that's not the intent. but the interesting thing is is that each each weekend that we serve someone is tasked with being the leader of a particular function. And, and this weekend, I am the head of the dorm. So you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, having to make sure everything goes smoothly in the dorm, everything from you know cleaning toilets and getting the bathrooms ready to uh, decorating the dorm and making sure that it works. But the way that this organization is structured is that you have to serve in a leadership role you know, in each of the functional areas before you can actually end up being the leader of the weekend. You know the director of of the whole weekend. And do you do you remember that was actually fashionable? Back in, I'm going to say it was the 80s because I was with Sabre, when they would flip-flop people's jobs in leadership, like the, the VP of sales would all of a sudden become the VP of operations so that he could understand what it was like to actually have to deliver against what his salespeople did. Yeah. And I think it's really, that, it's a model that we haven't heard a, a lot about lately of rotating people through positions.
0: Yeah. It's, and it's, I don't know why, I mean, that
1: just occurred to me. It doesn't have anything to do with anything Holly said. But, no, but it just occurred to me what a great model that is.
0: Well, you know, and it, it's kind of the traditional management training program, right? Mm-hmm. And companies like Marriott were known for that, right? Every hotel company in the world wanted to steal people from Marriott if they'd been through the management training program. And I right. think one of the things that you've described is that's kind of a hands-on, that's kind of a hands-on way to create respect across functions. Right. And, Absolutely. But you don't have to have gone and done it to respect it if the culture of the company is that way. And what's interesting is often those management training programs, that's the only group of people who respect each other across functions. Right. So, right. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, it gets back to the culture, but I—that really—I'm glad you brought that up. I think, you know, it might be something whose time has returned, if you will.
1: Right, and and you know, it it something that that occurred to me because I'm also, and and you will absolutely love this. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot lately on the show about kids and what kids are capable of. Yes. And uh, my, my daughter, who just turned 11 on, on Saturday, Kira is going to be going through something uh, called Enterprise Village. Uh, I think it's on February uh, not February uh, May 17th and they've got this workbook, and, and I had her her uh, social studies teacher give me the workbook, and it takes them really through a li- little mini MBA course, like a you know a fifth grade version of an MBA uh-huh. course
0: uh-huh. and then
1: yeah, and then they go, and for a day, they, they all go into this enterprise village, and, like, some people are the bosses. There's a mayor. There's, uh, you know, people who work at McDonald's. There are people who have, like, the, the store or the place where you go and get your supplies, and they actually have, uh, you know, like, the business owners have to go over, and first thing in the morning they have to apply for the business loan to get the money to pay the payroll, you know, so that the people will come to work. I mean, wow. it's unbelievable what they're putting them through. And so I have done a, uh, or, or cut a deal with her, her teacher, and I'm actually going to interview. Uh, the kids have to turn in their workbooks uh, the first week of May, and he's going to grade the workbooks. And the top three students you know, who got the best grades on the workbook, we're going to interview them on the show about what they think, after doing the workbook, that it takes to have a successful business. And then we're going to have those same three kids back after they've gone through Enterprise Village to ask about how their perceptions changed of actually having to work all day.
0: <laughs>
1: Won't that be fun?
0: Oh, that will be delightful.
1: I just think it's the coolest thing because my next question to you, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a college dropout, so I, I'm not always great at, at looking at the whole business theory but i'd love to know because you you did your mba a little bit later in life
0: yes how
1: how closely does real life in the real workplace resemble what you were prepared for in your mba program you're very quiet
0: <laughs> wow well, i've never thought of it quite that way so i'm trying to How closely does real life
1: or what did they forget to tell you maybe is the unspoken question there?
0: Well, I I guess there's two points I would make. One is that getting your MBA is often just like learning another language, right? And Mm -hmm. you learned that language. You taught yourself, right? So you've always been able to hold your own in a room full of MBAs. When they throw out all the financial terms and all the latest buzzwords, right. um, you know, of management techniques and use words like, well, what methodology did you use, you know, blah, 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 right? So right. part of it was just learning the lingo, just like any industry in a sense, right? So the travel industry has its lingo, you know, manufacturing has their lingo, advertising has theirs, blah, 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 right? So right. that was part of it. The other thing, though, and I think the thing that really worried me and I think often is what causes MBAs to kind of lose their luster and then regain it on occasion uh-huh. is that often people, that go, people go straight through school to get their MBA without any business experience at all. Right. And it has a way of of um, kind of creating a false sense of a command because you <laughs> do understand the theory, right? But right. It all comes back to the human factor, right?
2: Absolutely. So, well, um, I'm. La- I'll
1: tell you why I'm laughing well, because.
0: Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then I'll finish up with my, one of my examples, and it, it might okay. just take me right in. Go ahead.
1: Well, it, it usually does, which is what is the beauty of our, our relationship in this show, is uh, you know, Sergey, my, my soon-to-be nine-year-old, he, when we got the Wii game,
0: yeah. he
1: mastered Wii Tennis. And I mean, he rocked. He beat everybody on Wii Tennis, including the Wii Tennis players themselves. And he was so excited when Fidelia uh, said, okay, Sergey, well, let's go out and play tennis. And he grabbed the racket, and he grabbed the ball, and, like, he was sure he was just going to kick butt out there. (laughs) Well, you, of course, know, know what happened is that all of the learning that he thought he had done and all the mastery he had done in the Wii game didn't translate onto the court, and he was miserable. And, and you know, he came home with his head between his knees, and, I, you know, and I think that that sometimes is what happens with the MBA students that did exactly what you described is they didn't have any business experience whatsoever. So I'm sorry to interject that, but hopefully that will take you uh, well, beyond what you were going to
0: say. Well that's, well, that's exactly right, and it does segue with the example I was going to give, so here we are in one of my classes, right, and we're in, it was probably um, called organizational behavior, right? Uh-huh. And we did a lot of the traditional case study method where uh-huh. you read a story about a company and then you're supposed to come and guess or make guesses about um, what they ended up doing, how they did it, why you think that's what they should have done, blah, 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 Right. And then mm-hmm. you find out the truth, right, which is always funny. But So there was a situation where, you know, there was a merger, there was an acquisition, some people needed to change the way they did something or they were being asked to, whatever, and it wasn't happening. So the question to the class was, so what would you do? <laughs> right. And the youngins, if you will, the inexperienced ones, the ones with ze- they were like, just tell them. <laughs> so seriously, they thought all they had to do was walk into a room and tell these people to change the way they've been doing things for 20 years, walk away and it would be done. <laughs> they seriously, seriously didn't get it. And then they just wanted to fire them all.
2: Of course. Right?
1: Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. well,
0: you know, you can do that. Well, unless
1: you're unless you're in a company in Europe. In which case you can't.
0: Well, in the U.S., you can do that, but then you have to hire a whole new group of people who's not going to do it any (laughs) better.
1: Exactly.
0: You know, so, yeah, I I don't know if I answered your question. I'm very happy that I went and did it. I loved the place I did it at, and I loved the relationships, um, which still, 15 years later, are very strong
1: yes you know you're you're the one and maybe you're the only one who talks about it, but uh, you know I am amazed at how close you are with the people that you did go through that class with and and you've been through all kinds of life events with them, and uh, you know I think that you and John have actually traveled with with many of them
0: we have we have and you know I think we are a bit unusual as a group in that, and our even our um Alma mater mentions our class and talks about it, huh. and still we're still very all very close, and um, it was just a wonderful experience. You know, and it had to be. You know, it it had to do with a lot of each of us as individuals, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't give it up for the world.
1: Well, you know, I I didn't actually intend to talk about that this morning, but it just seemed uh, it seemed like it fit. Um, one of the things I wanted to do is to just uh, you know kind of take a look backwards at at the show we've now done over eighty uh, broadcasts since we launched uh, the Solutions Live Network on February third, and that hardly seems possible that we're already uh, you know this far into it. but you know the very first show we had on innovation and leadership was with Nancy Widman. And you weren't co-hosting with me then, and I'm not sure if you ever got to hear the show. But, um, you know, the thing that occurred to me this morning as I was looking back at the different people who had talked about leadership, particularly in the month of February, um, was Nancy uh, was with CBS Radio um, at a time when it was uh, just acquired by, I believe it was Westinghouse. And she wrote a book called, I Didn't See It Coming?, And it was the whole story of the impact of mergers and acquisitions on people at the top. And, you know, granted, CBS Radio is a very, very large organization. But I thought, you know, even though you haven't uh, perhaps listened to that broadcast, um, you know, you went through that even within the LasVegas.com organization. And, you know, I wanted to just briefly touch on what happens when you're a leader and you are responsible for Part of the negotiations and part of the discussion, knowing in many cases that you're going to be out of a job at the end of it. So, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the dynamics of that from how, how do you continue to lead an organization that is going through those kinds of, of discussions? And again, knowing that some of your people may not have jobs uh, due to redundancies, and, and certainly in your particular case, you were pretty sure that you weren't going to be the survivor of the leader of the merged organization.
0: You know, I, I really like this topic um, because one of the things I believe very strongly is that the only way to survive and the only way to thrive is to walk into any situation like that and look for the best solution to truly figure out what's best for the business. And if that means figuring out how to you know, leave, how to get rid of your job, how to transition a team out, how to do all of those things, that's what it takes to do it, right? You can't ever walk into work and be afraid of making the right decisions. And if you do stand up there and make the right decisions, when the decisions are things like eliminating your own job, eliminating your own department, um, you know, letting go your, your own staff or your division or whatever, there's an amazing amount of respect that you can acquire with that. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find is that because you have eased a very difficult transition, people will help ease yours as well. Right. And I, it's, it's kind of karma, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And being, the, you know, the best thing you can do is be honest with people. I think the thing that frustrates me the most with many leadership styles is that they think the people that work for them are different than they are. (laughs) Okay? So if you in leadership would like your board or your owners or your VC or your shareholders to let you know what's going to happen so that you can plan and prepare and maybe help make it happen better, regardless of what it is, don't you think your staff would like the same respect?
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And so I think that is probably my pet peeve about Mm. leadership, when they think that, oh, well, just because Joe answers the phone in customer support, he doesn't need to know that he's not going to have a job in three months.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, that that kind of leads right into the next topic, uh, which on February 10th, uh, we interviewed Joe Pine, who, uh, amongst other books, is the author of a book called Authenticity. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Chris, if I look at all the shows that we've done, really on almost every topic, if you want to leave a legacy, one of the ingredients must be authenticity. Even if you aren't the one who's actually leading something, mm-hmm. Uh, you know such as someone who's the inventor of a technology yep. and and who sees the power of what they've built enough to hand it over to somebody else to build the business around it
2: yep.
1: and and we've we've talked about that in the innovation side too but uh, you know can you just talk a little bit about the authenticity argument for yourself because you you've actually just described it uh,
0: yeah i think so i think it it's just <laughs> Well, it goes back to what the human factor. It goes back to what we talked about with the interview earlier today, right? Right. Um, It goes back to the fact that, you know, if those, oh, ah. (laughs) You know, there's so much to say about this. And and I thought Joe was one of, I, I loved Joe and the interview there and that authenticity and his examples of Southwest Airlines and Ben and Jerry's. And that people really can tell the difference. And, you know, there's a lot of philosophies, business philosophies, that say treat your employees well and they will treat the customers well. And there's been proof. Right. I mean, studies proven that that's the case. Companies that are cited as examples day to day that that's the case. And still businesses can't seem to do that. Right. <laughs> so, you know, There's also a discussion we've had about authenticity, Chicky, where we've talked about people who are different during the day than they are, you know, different at work than they are at home, that they they have a work persona and an off-work persona. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like they put on their Disney hat to go to work and become some kind of gruff, obnoxious asshole. Right. Worst case, worst case. Um, But even those who don't, Become that person. They can become a person who just changes. Right. And, and anytime you change and you aren't yourself, then that authenticity that there's a little edge there of people aren't sure who they're dealing with, and you've created, I think, a trust issue. And one of the things in you know, in order for to keep a company going, you've got to have trust, so that people are willing to tell you that hey, this business model's failing hey, the way we've been doing things isn't working. Hey, let's have a discussion about this. So that people are willing to let you know that something over here is going crazy before you have to call in the fire department,
1: right? Absolutely. Well, and I think that gets back to what we were talking about with Holly about sometimes why we do enjoy working with executive women as much as we do. And I, I realize that there are women who, who also do what you just Described, they have, you know, their own persona outside of work, and in particularly if they're the only woman in the boardroom or or in uh, in the executive team, that they do, you know, put on that man suit and behave differently. But I, I think what what we've found certainly with our group on the executive girlfriends group is that most of those women know that they have permission to be themselves
0: yeah.
1: um, and, and to to be the person. Who can sit down and have a dialogue about something outside of work that is impacting their ability to focus, and that that's not, you know, uh, forbidden. And and you know, it gets back, uh, like you said, <laughs> well, this we should have made Holly the um, the uh, sponsor of today's show because we keep mentioning her company, but <laughs> it really does come back to the human factor. And you know, you use the word. Uh, you know, the karma that gets created from that. And that kind of leads me to my next uh, guest that we had on February 17th, which was Bob Berg, the author of The Go-Giver. And I got to tell you, um, and and actually the previous week or or, um, the first week of our show, we interviewed his co-author, John David Mann. And, you know, the meeting of bob and 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 john and and when I intersected in in their lives uh, over two years ago when they wrote that book um, you know now that i 've interviewed them, they have inter- or introduced me to so many people that are are now a driving force in my life, and it's just unbelievable. They're having a big confab this weekend in in uh, Orlando, and Bob invited me, and it just killed me that I couldn't go. But you know, uh, again, I'm a, a leader on the Trace Dias organization, so I, I've got to go uh, do that. But never in my life have I wanted to be in two places more than this weekend because. <laughs> Uh, Bob just is, is such an amazing individual. But again, you know, what he talked about in, in that book is giving yourself the permission to be authentic and to not only give and, and to give more than people expect of you, but also to be willing to receive from others. And I think that is actually a real leadership challenge, that a lot of leaders can't let other people do things for them, which is why delegation is hard, Right.
0: Right, and, you know, that, well, yeah, yeah, there you go. And I think women may, I don't know, but they may have an even harder time with that.
1: Yeah, um, I it, would agree with that.
0: You know, and uh, because of the whole, you know, responsibility for the family thing. And it's also the case that, you know, it's it's been shown that in order to, well, We've all heard that in order to grab something new, you've got to let go of the old, right? Right. So let go of this so your hands-free to grab this new thing. And the leadership ladder, in a sense, which isn't really a ladder anymore, it's kind of a weird little step over here, it, I, think leaders, I think the career path these days looks more like a rock climbing wall. That is <laughs> like a ladder. So, oh, I love that. Because if you go sideways, you might go down a little bit to get a new handhold over here, this and that, right? So, oh, um, I love that, Chris. So, But, but yeah, it's... it's. Now, see, I lost my train of thought. But, anyway, the whole <laughs> That's point... That's what was, happens
1: when brilliance uh, comes <laughs> down on you.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. But one, one of the things about the go-giver and one of those things about being authentic and be, allowing... Yes, so it was letting people help, right? And trusting, again, trust, it comes back. You've got to just trust that when you delegate something, they will do it. And you know what? I mean, we have both learned, I think we've learned over the years, I have for sure, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but that if you have high expectations of someone, and you let them know what your expectations are, and you hand something off to them trusting that they are going to be good and, you know, that you did hand it to the right person, right? Let's start there. That trust is enabling. It's empowering. And they want to succeed. You know, they want to deliver. They want to hand it back to you. Right, right. You know, they want to be valued. Um, you know, and well,
1: and I, th- I think that gets gets back to the whole human factor thing. And, and, and our last guest in February was Susan Steinbrecher, uh, author of The Heart-Centered Leadership. And while we don't have time to talk about it because we've just got about a minute left, um, I just wanted to encourage folks that uh, you are um, perfectly uh, – well, actually, we, we would love if you would go back and listen to some of those uh, archive shows. They are shown on the website, www.blogtalkradio dot com solutions live and they are shown as uh, on demand and you can both download them or you can listen to them uh, each show is one hour or two hours I'm sorry uh, four different interviews uh, on each show so downloading is sometimes the best so that you can fast forward and stop and all of that fun stuff well Chris it has been great and we are going to have to wrap it up but I look forward to you Uh, again on Thursday
0: thanks have a great week
1: okay you too for more information about Solutions Live see www.solutionslive.blogspot.com that's solutions with a Z I trust that today's show provided you with a bit of innovation and some inspiration Join us again on Thursday from 10 until noon for the personal side of professional life. Go out and begin to leave your legacy today.
0: of this world